0: Milk is full of tiny reasons to be joyful. Just listen. Hmm, can't help but feel it's lacking something. That's because milk exposed to indoor light only has a fraction of the vitamins and nutrients our bodies were hoping for. This, though, this is milk from an Aluma-certified light-protected bottle.
1: That's more like it! To step into the light, the bottle's got to be right. Search lightdamagesreal.com
0: you watch the movies, flicks, tracks, for the good, That it's the slash build cast, for the girls.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devendra Hardwar.
0: And Christy Puchko.
1: Devendra, welcome back. You were not here last week. Uh, I think you were yeah. in Taiwan at Computex, right? Yeah, it was a fun trip, as always. Uh, very cool. And
2: uh, did you see any movies while you were there? I did. I did end up seeing uh, Jurassic World Fallen
1: Kingdom because it was released there last week. Yeah, it was released internationally before it released in the U.S., very
2: confused why, uh, but I ended up seeing it with a bunch of like I think several classes of uh, Taiwanese school kids, and they really like Chris Pratt. Like whenever <laughs> that guy just talks, he says anything. It's not even a funny line. Like they will just eat it up. So hmm. I yeah I don't know. And kids love dinosaurs, so that was a fun crowd to see it in. And uh, I can't wait for our full review because it's uh it is an improvement over Jurassic <laughs> World. So there is that. Overall, thumbs up or thumbs down, Davidra. Undressed. Uh, thumbs halfway. Right. I really like the set pieces. I I have to rewatch uh, Lost World actually because I feel like it's very similar to that movie in that at times it's very well made,
1: but it's also super dumb. So
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> Christy, I think you also saw it uh, as well, right? Did you see I Lost did. World? I yeah. also saw it. Thumbs up or thumbs down from you?
0: I'm gonna go thumbs down.
1: <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, uh, my, I my
0: reviews on Pajiba. I'm not yeah. a fan of this one. Yeah. I have
1: Velociraptor not seen... claw down. Uh, I I have not seen Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom yet. We'll be reviewing it on the Slash Filmcast when that movie comes out. Uh, I did have a chance to watch Jurassic Park this week uh, with my wife, who was watching it Mm -hmm. for the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, she was trolling me uh, while watching it because she knows that that's a movie that I really, really love. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene when Dr. Ian Malcolm says, you know, life finds a way. And she says, hey, that's from the trailer for Jurassic uh, World Fallen Kingdom, um, uh. which, which actually just pointed out how intellectually bankrupt this entire series has become. Yep. But I uh-huh. can't really pronounce judgment upon it until I see it. So um, I can't wait to check it out anyway.
0: I can, but I'll wait.
1: <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, anyway. Anyway. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast.gmail.com. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing what we've been watching this week and then diving into an in-depth review. This week, we'll be reviewing Hereditary, uh, the new horror film by A24. It's out in theaters right now. It's one of their best opening weekends of all time, uh, mm-hmm. Hereditary. I think $13 million opening weekend. Uh, which is a really strong opening for a horror film of this size and scale. Uh, it really
2: shows just what we want to do to ourselves as a culture, too. So, indeed, just give, uh, give us this. It give did, us an escape from this hellscape.
1: It did score a <laughs> D plus uh, cinema score, which is less of a uh, mark of uh, how good the film is, and more of a mark of uh, whether audiences received what they expected. Uh, and so I think, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to diving into the film with you guys later on in this episode. But before we get to any of that, uh, we do want to mention one thing, which is that Anthony Bourdain passed away this week uh, and is quite a shock to a lot of people. Um, but he died at the age of 61. Uh, and it's something that I, I, like my Twitter feed and Facebook feed filled for days with with remembrances uh, yeah. of his work. Devendra, I I know you were a big fan. Um, You know, how did you react to this news?
2: Yeah, as uh, I heard this news as I was boarding the airplane to return to New York City, the city of Anthony Bourdain, you know, the city of also of Bowie and everything. I I learned about Bowie as I was getting on a plane, leaving CES to come back here. Um, I think like, so yeah, my first response was, fuck, Mm -hmm. because... He is such a he's such a unique personality. He is one of my favorite people in general, I think. Like he is a great television producer and, you know, great host, but also a great writer and a great thoughtful person. Um there are a lot of food shows out there. His stuff never talked down to other cultures. He mm-hmm. was just so curious about everything, really, and trying to understand it. Like there was so much empathy and so much understanding in what he was trying to do. And uh, he's also just a great writer in general, too. And like, it, that all came out in his shows, um, especially No Reservations and the, the latest show, Parts Unknown, that's on CNN. Um, but I've read all his stuff. I've watched all his shows, including the first show, which is not very good. But it's really fascinating to see how much you know, he's improved and the people he's worked with have improved. Um, yeah, this is, this is just tough because, uh, as I was saying, um, you know, we live in a hellscape. It is kind of nice to have mm-hmm. you know a smart guy who isn't afraid to you know speak truth and cut through the bullshit. He is definitely like the the I don't I don't know like prototypical New Yorker to me. like everything I love about New Yorkers cutting through all the noise and nonsense. He was that guy. Um, he had a rough life. He's you know he he talks about like all the mistakes he made and working through addiction and honestly spending a lot of his life in a rough place. But his redemption story, I found always fascinating. Um, His shows have been amazing. They're also, you know, if you guys listen to this show and you're not watching his stuff, uh, I I don't know what to say because he is such a cinephile and he brought that into all of his shows. Uh, Yeah, I think one of his first Rome episodes was just, you know, all black and white, all, you know, trying to be a a, classical film or something. Uh, there was just so much going on here. I'm still working through this. Um, but yeah, Chrissy, I know you're a fan as well.
0: Yeah, uh, it it was... I was like getting ready to write for the day and mm-hmm. um, someone in Slack said Anthony Bourdain died and I was so shocked I literally screamed. Um, yep. And it's hard. It's hard to explain because it's like, you know, it, it was just something about his writing and and his persona, like it was complicated. He was one of the, one of our writers of Pajiba privately described him as like a good asshole. And like, I get it. It's like, he didn't, he didn't like try to come off cuddly. He seemed like the kind of person you would want to sit down with and have like a festive argument with, you know, and like really get into it. And I, I think I was so shocked because I think I felt like I know him, even though we've never met. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. It was very shocking. And I, I've watched his shows kind of hit or miss throughout the years, but I never like doggedly sat down and watched a bunch of them. And then over the weekend I started watching Parts Unknown because someone tweeted that it was on Netflix and it was only gonna be there until June sixteenth. Yeah. And it felt like a way to kind of not just pay tribute, but to just also um as a soothing thing because uh, several people, I mean, I was one of the people that were tweeting and saying like, he meant a lot to me and like his passion meant a lot to me and the way he wrote and the way he gave his voice was really inspiring on a lot of levels, like not just as a writer, but also as a person who is like, you know, occasionally just struggling in this world. And like, he's, he's been through it. And like, he's also been really supportive of the me too movement Mm -hmm. and of Asia Argento. And, um, Uh, you know, he was really inspiring to me. Um, And some, some of my followers wrote to me and said, well, you know, I don't really know Bourdain. Like it's so, so such a shame I missed out. And I mean, the upside is you didn't miss out. He, his, his work is still all here. You can still read kitchen confidential. You can still watch his shows. And I mean, they're still amazing. Like no matter how he went out, like they're still incredible. And Mm -hmm. uh, Netflix announced today that they're keeping on um, parts unknown. So you can still watch that show past uh, June 16th on Netflix. And I really recommend it. Cause I know for some people over the weekend, I said to somebody I've been watching it, and they're like, I feel like it'd be too hard. And I'm like, no, it's kind of amazing. Cause it's like, you know, it's like listening to Bowie music doesn't make me sad. It makes me feel grateful that we had this person and that they were able to, to show us the world. And, um, he just has such a passion and compassion for people, but he also doesn't like let anyone get away with anything. Like he t- takes you to some of these like parts of the world that have bad reputations. And he's trying to show you like what we don't get to see in the news. But then he also is very confrontational with like, you know, I like he did an episode in Colombia, and like, they talk mm-hmm. about cocaine a lot. Like it's not, he doesn't just give it a soft sell. It's not puff piece. Oh, yeah. stuff. He, and it's just like, you feel his lust for life in everything he did. And, um, yeah, it's just really sad. And I, I don't know. It, it's been it's been weird because, like, yeah, every day, the, all the tributes and stuff, one, make me feel good, like you won't be forgotten. But every time I see his name, it does feel like a little bit of a kick to the teeth again.
2: Yeah, I, I think especially because things are so rough right now, it was it was great to have somebody like him around, you know, yeah. like, OK, the the world is OK if, you know, somebody like Bourdain can be around and, you know, call people out
0: and push and, back
2: push back yeah and do the thing so it's especially tough and like you were saying like such a he had such a passion for life that yeah it was incredibly sad to see it cut short so I mean, yeah check out the shows everybody
0: my final comment and this would be last week jeff and i were talking a little bit about um mr rogers and it's like i know this seems like a weird comparison mm-hmm. but in the same way that like the Mr. Rogers doc encourages you to like, okay, Mr. Rogers has passed, but now it's on us to be the Mr. Rogers that we want to see in the world. And I feel like it's the same thing with Bourdain. Like mm-hmm. it sucks that he's not around anymore, but um, I think that it's now on us to like, to try to push and be that person that we want to see online and in the, and in the fight and in our writing, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we should continue to be inspired by him.
2: For sure. And also travel. Travel is like the Absolutely. thing I got after you know, I, I, I've i always been kind of an anxious traveler, but really diving into his stuff, he really sparked that interest in me and kind of helped me kind of get out of my comfort zone and start going places and not be afraid to travel on my own at times, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I think that's the big takeaway, right? Travel, try to understand your fellow humans, because that's what he always did so well.
1: There is a piece of The New Yorker that Bourdain wrote in April of 1999 uh, that Kicked off his writing career uh, It's entitled Don't Eat Before Reading This uh, mm-hmm. You guys are talking about living life to the fullest for, for some reason, you know, people have been sharing A lot of Bourdain's writing online this week And uh, I just randomly Want to share this one paragraph That is the one that has uh, Stuck with me this week I don't, it's, not, it's not like his best paragraph or anything But it's just like the one that sticks with me He writes here, quote uh, Like most other chefs I know, I'm amused when I hear people object to pork On non-religious grounds Swine are filthy animals, They say These people have obviously never visited a poultry farm. Chicken, America's favorite food, goes bad quickly. Handled carelessly, it infects other foods with with salmonella, and it bores the hell out of chefs. It occupies its ubiquitous place on menus as an option for customers who can't decide what they want to eat. Most chefs believe that supermarket chickens in this country are slimy and tasteless compared with European varieties. Pork, on the other hand, is cool. Farmers stopped feeding garbage to pigs year, uh, decades ago, and even if you eat pork rare, you're more likely to win the lotto than to contract trichinosis. Pork tastes different depending on what you do with it, but chicken always tastes like chicken. End quote. Anyway, I just thought, I was just like huh, I never thought about that uh, that way. Um, mm-hmm. But there's so uh, many more insights for you, Dave. No, and I know, I know. Like I know, <laughs> I, I, I know that's like, not wow, like pork. <laughs> he has a point there, and that's not the most <laughs> profound. That's not the most profound point, but the the, the idea behind it is that like. That you have choices in life, like you can choose, you know, uh, the choice that like is extremely safe, or you can choose something that has the potential to be more interesting. And Mm -hmm. um, that was something that uh, Anthony Bourdain did really well, which is he was able to choose uh, foods that were more interesting and that were bold and that other people looked down upon. And as an Asian person, as a Chinese person, um, you know, Chinese people eat foods that Americans find revolting. I mean, that's just Mm -hmm. a fact. Uh, and that's not something that Anthony Bourdain ever, uh, uh, he, he was never revolted uh, or never turned up his nose at, at, uh, any yeah. kind of food, no matter how. He some um, terrible things,
2: but especially if it was something he had to do to be respectful to the host, he, yeah,
1: yeah he do it. It's just, man. He had this saying about like how food is, uh, a story you know like when someone shares their food with you they're sharing mm-hmm. like the story of their culture with you and um and how like no matter how insane it seems to you uh that it behooves you not to turn it down so mm. um anyway
2: yeah uh, there's so much also i just want to shout out like the
1: i think it was the hong kong episode
2: of parts unknown that just aired or recently aired and he got to just like hang out in hong kong with the uh, it was it christopher doyle one car wise dp and he just, oh, like, wow. hung out with him, and he, like, helped shoot the episode. Like, that's that's the sort of cinephile that he is, and, like, going on those crazy adventures. So, yeah, that is... If you want a sense of, like, just how much of a cinephile Bourdain was, uh, that's the episode to see. But you see that in all all the episodes. Like, so many food shows. I think of, like, Bizarre Foods or something, and, like, the stuff on Travel Network and Food Network. They're, they're so badly made. It's, like... <laughs> they try to be food porn, but they're not interesting. Bourdain stuff always tried to be more than that.
1: And yeah, inherently cinematic in a way. You can check out Parts Unknown on Netflix, uh, where they have extended the license for that show for apparently many months to come, according to the Netflix Twitter account. That's good. So Parts Unknown by Anthony Bourdain. Uh, He will be missed. All right, folks, let's move on to what we've been watching this week. Christy, You've been watching a couple things. Uh, Oceans yeah. Eight, the new Oceans yeah. film. You no,
0: know, with a summer movie wager, uh, I have it as my Dark Horse, and I'm getting a lot of uh, a lot of stick about that. Um, it's doing really well, which is exciting, and uh, I'm excited <laughs> for it. I'm just hoping it doesn't do too well, but for personal reasons, it's fine. Um, no, but Oceans <laughs> Eight is a spinoff of the Oceans Eleven, Twelve, Thirteen franchise. The idea is that Sandra Bullock is Danny Ocean, George Clooney's sister. And she has her own heist, and the cast is amazing. It's Mindy Kaling and Kate Blanchett and uh, Helena Bottom Carter and Aquafina and Rihanna, and I'm, I'm forgetting someone, Anne Hathaway. Um, and it is uh, directed by Gary Ross. The movie itself is fine, it's a completely competent heist movie, um, but the cast is outstanding. They're so much fun. Mm-hmm. And from just, like, a fashion perspective, oh, my God, this movie. Like, I could just watch Kate Blanchett stride around in her suits forever. She wears so many super cool, super fun looks in this. And it's just, there's just, like, a lot of stuff to just visually geek out about um, that I got a big kick out of. Um, and Anne Hathaway is shockingly funny in this, and that's not that Anne Hathaway's not funny, but she plays against type in this, and I don't want to get too in- into that, because I don't know if, who's watching trailers and who's not, but mm-hmm. I will say this, like, Anne Hathaway's performance in this was, to me, like, the great surprise that Michelle Williams' performance is, is in I Feel Pretty, and Ocean's Eight's a better movie than I Feel Pretty, 100%, but it's like, you have this dramatic actress that you've sometimes seen do other things or whatever, but she's so funny and effervescent and, like, unexpected in this. I wrote about it for Pajiba, so if you are more interested in hearing about the Anne Hathaway thing, do check out Pajiba. I've also written up what I think about the sequel should do, which they haven't announced a sequel, but they have to announce a sequel. This movie is just too much fun. It's making enough money that I feel like a sequel is almost guaranteed. But, um, yeah, it's really fun. It's very zippy, and uh, I saw it on Saturday, again, in theaters, because I wanted a break and it seemed like as much as I love some of the things that are out right now, Oceans 8 was like, let's go have like a fun, crowd pleasing movie moment. And it was great to watch it with like an audience that was like a really stacked audience like it was full and people were having a great time and laughing and cheering and it was really fun. Very
1: cool. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple things I want to point out. First of all, I Feel Pretty. It, it took me like a second to figure out what movie you're talking about. You're talking about the Amy <laughs> Schumer movie that came out most recently, right? Oh,
0: yeah. Do you guys not casually reference I Feel Pretty all the time? I, yeah. I, you
1: know, I don't. I'm in, I'm kind of working it in. <laughs> I'm kind of working it into my vernacular, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, but apparently Michelle Williams was in that. I didn't even know that. But she was good.
0: Yeah, she is literally the only reason to watch I Feel Pretty. For those that did not see I Feel Pretty, you should not see I Feel Pretty. But in I Feel Pretty... <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying it because I do feel pretty um (laughs) no but in I feel pretty Michelle Williams plays this like breathy like makeup executive and it feels like she's supposed to be like Gwyneth Paltrow or Ivanka Trump or something like that but she she manages to do this like breathy thing where she does the like the sexy baby voice from 30 Rock but like that's not the joke. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to explain. She's wonderful in that movie. And everything else about that movie is problematic and not funny and not very good. But, like, every time she would, like, appear in this dress that's, like, a beautiful blue dress but it has golden retrievers on it. And then she would, like, rest her head awkwardly on a lunch table you're just like, what is happening? She was just this fairy princess of an executive and I was obsessed with everything she did in that movie. So it's like Anne Hathaway has a moment like that where it's not the same character remotely but where she gets to do something so different from anything we've seen her from that it feels like there's no map, and it's just really fun to watch her play in that area. Mm, very
1: cool. Yeah. Uh, you've just uh, done more to intrigue me uh, about "I Feel Pretty" than you know any of the marketing campaign for that film. But uh, I, I will have to check that out, especially the when cool that clip bargain. hits. Especially when that clip hits YouTube in six months. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, also, you, you know, someone pointed this out on Twitter the other day, and it completely blew my mind that the reason, like, they, they postulated that the reason it's named Oceans 8 is so they could, they could make three of them without overlapping with the existing Oceans films. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Didn't even occur to me that that was the reason, <laughs> but uh, now it makes complete sense. Yeah. Um. There's been a lot written about Oceans 8. Uh, Christy, I'm curious if you've read any of the writing about it. Like, for instance, I think, like, David Ehrlich wrote this piece for IndieWire about how uh, studios that choose people like Gary Ross to make movies are taking the quote unquote safe path. Um, I think Amanda Hess wrote something about how uh, *Oceans 8 is like like we we have to stop with the female led reboots of male led films because it, like we, we basically like it's better to tell original stories rather than trying to like do the same thing but also sure. do it with feminist ideas and you know. Uh, try to redeem the original in some way um what is your opinion on the kind of the the discourse around this movie
0: well i mean i think the frustration coming from critics about oceans eight is justifiable it's that um gary ross did not make his own movie he Mm -hmm. made his version of a soderbergh movie and like gary ross is not a guy known for his style he's uh what's the word a workman is that what I'm yeah, thinking? Journeyman?
2: Journeyman? Journeyman. I biscuit Seabiscuit would say otherwise.
0: <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen Seabiscuit since it came out. No, so maybe... I, been, I like,
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know anything about Seabiscuit. He's
0: not but... a guy with a strong visual stamp is what I'm yeah, saying. And yeah. like, I, I feel like, you know, it, it's a little frustrating that with Ocean's 8, they gave it to him. And when they announced that, I was like, the cast is great, but Gary Ross does not make mm-hmm. me excited. And it's the same thing mm-hmm. to me as the solo argument with, with Ron Howard. It's not that Ron Howard's not a good director. It's just that like... You know, Ron Howard doesn't give me like an immediate taste in my mouth of what that meal is going to be. You know what I mean? To -hmm. to, to
2: paraphrase Arrested Development, him?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, And
0: yeah, I didn't I didn't read Amanda Hess's piece. I bookmarked it because I do want to read it, um, but I didn't get around to it today. But I think that there's something to be said for that, because, like, you know, people are comparing this and the Ghostbusters movie. And I get it because you're basically saying, like, well, what if we plug in girls? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, why don't we create something new? but we know why it's because hollywood is still afraid to trust women and lead roles so they're like well if we can sell somebody on a concept they already like but it's it sets up this weird conflict then right because then you have the people that are like but i like the original why you gotta put girls in it and it's like you know those people are never going to see the movie anyway but now they're fired up about a movie they're not going to see and they were never going to see so it's i don't know how helpful that Mm -hmm. is um Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I I actually feel like the things that pin it to the Ocean's franchise are kind of the weakest elements of Ocean's 8. Like, you know, they have to keep mentioning that she's one of the Ocean's. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> like, no spoilers. But I mean, her being related to Danny has nothing to do with this plot.
2: Yeah, he was clearly. Yeah, she was clearly a close sibling. To never... <laughs> never have come up never. in any of the first right. three Oceans Yeah, <laughs> It's hilarious. I, for me, the biggest issue here is not just that Gary Ross is kind of a boring director, but this movie screams to have been directed by a woman.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: and I think it's that's like a fundamental... Uh, almost, it's practically like a cinematic crime that a woman didn't get a chance to make this movie.
0: Right, because you're making a movie about women in like mm-hmm. a man's world, and you're making a woman a movie that's supposed to be by women and for women, and or, like, for women and about women, and then just, you know, put a woman in the director's chair. Like, a woman co-wrote the movie, and, like, there are all these amazing women in it. Like, it's not that I think only women can tell women's stories, but I do think that there would have been, like... Or or it's more like, yeah,
1: like, if you're going to choose a man, you know, Gary Ross, really? You know, I mean... Right, right.
0: (laughs) Like, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I'm not necessarily, like, they had to pick a woman, but, like, I, I feel like Gary Ross is... You know, Gary Ross is safe in a lot of ways yeah. and not mm-hmm. just his mm-hmm. directing style. So, yeah, that's part of uh, in my piece for Pajiba about what I want to see if they do in Ocean's Nine. Yeah, I want to see a female director in that spot. There are so many exciting female directors working right now. Give one of them a shot. Let her play with this world and these characters. And, you know, because it's like there's good fashion stuff in it, but some of it feels kind of like a checklist. Like there's like one shot of shoes where it's like women like shoes, right? OK, let's move on. <laughs> I think I
2: had I had a fever dream at one point where Sofia Coppola made this movie and just imagining what that would be like. Something like that. Right. Like somebody with actual visual sense and who has been making movies, you know, trying to say something about women for a long time.
0: Yeah. And this movie is like so much about fashion and so much about luxury. And like they're they do like have moments where they're like, look at the jewelry, look at the whatever. Um, But it's not until like the actual Met Gala that I feel like the movie understands how much fun it is for women to watch these fashion moments. Um, so, yeah, there's there's like missed opportunities like that that I would really like to have seen further explored.
1: In Amanda Hess's piece, she writes here for the New York Times, the men of Ocean's Eleven got to do one thing the women of Ocean's Eight do not, star in a good movie. Uh, once, upon second viewing the 80s, Ghostbusters, and Overboard aren't lofty critical achievements either, but at least they're originals, which gave them the room to become phenomena. Note to Hollywood, when women complain that they aren't afforded the same roles in Hollywood that men are, they weren't speaking literally, end quote. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's a good piece and uh, very interesting. But despite all despite all those terrible things I just mentioned about the movie, uh, Christy, I'm glad you had a chance to enjoy it. I, I'm Yeah, glad, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it could be better. Yeah, you fun. know, that it was, it was breezy fun. And uh, I've been told it's a perfect date movie, so um, mm-hmm. I think we'll... We'll check it out at some point. Um, uh, you know, I do want to do uh, so. That's Ocean's Eight. It's out in theaters right now. I do want to do a uh, brief check-in on the summer movie wager because you mentioned, uh, oh hey, <laughs> you, like Ocean's Eight. You didn't put on a summer movie, on your summer movie wager it's list. My
0: dark horse.
1: Uh, it's your it's dark, dark horse, uh, but it does in fact look like at its current trajectory, it's going to come in around nine or ten, right yeah. for uh, for the summer. It could, yeah. Which uh, you know puts it right around where I put. Ocean's 8 on my list. Um, <laughs> how are you guys feeling about your list at this point? I mean, do you guys feel like, oh, man, really some terrible decisions I made during the it's course not really of I think
0: I made terrible decisions. I wish that I had more faith in Ocean's 8 and less in Solo, but I'm still feeling confident.
1: All right. All right. Did any thoughts? But we didn't know.
0: We had no idea. For the record, when we did uh-huh. that Summer wa- movie wager, we knew nothing about Solo <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> except that it was about like that it's about Han Solo and like those numbers have been depressing. The, the Solo yeah.
1: numbers uh, it is basically become apparent that mm-hmm. Solo a Star Wars story will be the lowest grossing live action Star Wars film of all time and that includes the original trilogy not adjusted for inflation. Like,
0: you
1: know, like we're talking about like Empire, you know, Return of the Jedi, like those movies not adjusted for inflation. Um, So it's it's pretty rough going for Solo, Star Wars story.
0: Uh,
1: I think like my big regret is I have. First of all, I put Deadpool 2 way too high. Um, (laughs) I think I had it at like number three and it's not going to be number three. Um, And I put Incredibles 2. At number four, and I think that was a big mistake because I think mm. Incredibles two is going to do really, really well. I think Incredibles two is going to be like, uh, based on the the buzz and the pre sales, it feels like it has a chance to be this year's Finding Dory. Um, so oh, wow. that, that's like kind right. of where I'm like regretting my choices, but I still feel like I'm going to beat everyone. How about you, Divindra? Uh I mean, honestly, I haven't been
2: paying much attention, <laughs> but I also have Incredibles two at number four and. You know, I should have, I should have just had more faith in my gut instinct uh, for what Ron Howard would do with that movie, um, and <laughs> put Solo much lower than three. But you know, whatever. I think um, the biggest you know.
1: failures of Solo are not as a result of Ron Howard. You know, uh, but, uh, I would uh, say they're the
0: script. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I would say it's very much certainly level.
1: certainly uh,
2: in the script, but also you know, uh, uh, that's a longer uh, conversation. Yeah, um, uh, Ocean's Eight. I have it number eight um so we'll see how that works out yeah so it
1: might work out uh people have like there's already been sites that that uh are are now predicting you know like there's like pro box office sites that now predict what every movie will make for the end of summer and according to those predictions davindra you and i are neck and neck uh for the summer. so we'll see what happens
0: what did they say the meg is gonna do
1: uh i don't think they predicted meg would do very well uh, I
0: want the have meg so you guys come seen in? the meg Sandies? i'm so excited but i've only been around the meg Sandies by myself and it won't work as a self-date <laughs> i have, have you...
2: seen them they're amazing and also they that trailer so is amazing uh i cannot wait for that movie that movie will i either can't either i don't think me. it's gonna make cause...
0: as much as you do but i legit <laughs> really want to see it
1: <laughs> it's gonna be so fun yeah angie it's han cool. and
0: i have been talking about that movie since they announced like the optioning of it
1: Yep. Pro.boxoffice.com BoxOffice. Uh, has projections that do not have Meg anywhere in the top ten, uh, but it does, however, have Skyscraper at number ten. So just going to where
0: it is Teen thing. Titans go?
1: Um, it is also not in the top ten list. It's weird, Kristy. Well, sorry. then
0: fake news. I mean, it's that, out. That trailer
1: is very <laughs> nice, though. That was a fun trailer to see right before Deadpool. Uh, yeah. yeah. Also, like, there's this there's this whole narrative online <laughs> now, guys. Have you seen this that, like, Christopher Robin might do really well? I, I don't know about that. No, that feels... this is
0: not a narrative. This is like a <laughs> weird conspiracy theory that I put no stock in. <laughs> Look, Pooh <coughs> is cute. We all know Pooh is cute. That did not save the last year's Christopher Robin movie either. Well, yeah, I, I think...
2: Also,
1: Paddington was cuter and...
0: Yes, Did and we had that this well? year, and it's out on DVD. Yeah. You all go by Paddington too, and I'm astonished we haven't talked about that on this show. I, I, you
1: know, I will mention it because I actually watched this week. Um, but, <gasps> okay. uh, but yeah, Christopher Robin released a trailer recently that was much better than the extremely depressing teaser trailer. Uh, so maybe Christopher Robin's going to
0: be good, guys. Uh, I think I, you'll have a strong opening weekend, but if it is anywhere near as depressing yeah. as I suspect it will be, <laughs> it's not going to stay I'm up I'm sure there. parents
2: will want to bring their kids to
1: cry. Basically, it is just so bizarre that we had a movie called Goodbye, Christopher Robin, not very long ago in Mm -hmm. 2017, last last year, last year. And now there's another movie called Christopher Robin. I mean, even with like Armageddon and Deep Impact or Dante's Peak and Volcano, like the names are really, really different. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Uh, But the idea that we're having two movies that have the name Christopher Robin in the title in two years is insane to me
0: right also it's like christopher robin's story's not a happy one like yeah. he like goodbye christopher robin made that very clear and like that was part of the reason i was like i don't enjoy this movie at all like it's it's not like i warned people I was like look if you love winnie the pooh maybe don't see this movie <laughs> it's uh you know his his childhood was not awesome after his dad decided to make him famous
1: indeed indeed all right uh well christy you've been watching one one other thing right
0: yeah, I'll talk about this briefly because we've been kind of uh, luxuriating. But uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I also saw Hotel Artemis, which is out in theaters now. It's the uh, written, directed by Drew Pierce, who wrote and directed the Marvel one-shot uh, Hail to the King. And Hotel Artemis uh, kind of plays like a John Wick spinoff. It's completely unofficial. This is not at all related to John Wick. But if you know, they, they
2: just cost- stole that idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's they, it's not subtle. How um, is this?
2: How is this a thing? How did they just steal? Like the hotel idea from *Travelers*.
0: Yeah, it's basically very like confused. the Continental, except that um, Hotel Artemis is not actually a hotel; it is a hospital, but specifically a hospital for high rollin' gangsters who pay a membership fee so that whenever they need to be stitched up, they have a place to go. So uh, Jodie Foster plays the nurse, uh, and she's really fun in this. She's like very like harried and like she's—I mean, she's basically like a sheriff, like you know, like strutting around and telling people what to do. And there's all these rules about how you have to behave in the hotel. You know, you can't kill all these the rules guests. you say. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very much it's very much like I said, it's basically a John Wick spinoff and totally unofficial. It's like one of those novels you find at the grocery store that's like star battles. Yeah. Starring Luke. Except Hard this is a Walker. good cast, too. No, it's a really I think it's a really it's fun insane. movie. Uh, the critics seem split on it. Some people think it doesn't live up to its promise. But, like, my thing is I think it promised you a really fun, weird movie. And it doesn't have as much action as a John Wick movie. Um, but it has, like, it it has like a lot of kind of, like, moody scenes. And my thing is really that the character work by the actors is so much fun. Because the cast is Jodie Foster, Sterling K. Brown, Sophia Botella from Kingsman, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Jenny Slate, Zachary Quinto, Charlie Day, Dave Bautista. And, mm-hmm. like, they some of them are playing so wildly against type like Charlie Day in this is like this real sketchy arms dealer. And uh, that's not a spoiler. It's on the posters. Jeff Goldblum is fantastic in this. It's so I don't want to say anything, else, but it's just so much fun to watch. Like I it's just like a really good, weird, like dank, gritty movie that like, you know, it's really great for like a Friday night or, you know, eventually when it's on digital, if you want to just have a beer and kick back to it, I think it'd be a really fun movie. Um, So yeah, Hotel Artemis, it's not on a lot of people's radar, but if you like John Wick, I think you will like this. It's not officially on that vein, but it's very fun. It's very much
2: my jam, but also I like John Wick and I'm pissed off by this movie (laughs) and the fact that they can literally just steal one of the core ideas from John Wick. I cannot wait for Hotel Artemis. Uh, v john wick the lawsuit that is going to be the movie i'm looking forward to
1: Mm. well i I don't think uh i don't think john wick is going to extract much money from hotel artemis uh because the movie bombed horribly at the box office this weekend (laughs) um but it
2: doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much money it made it matters
1: how much money the studios have right uh Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. But yeah, uh, Hotel Artemis came in eighth at the box office this weekend uh-huh. uh, and made $3 million in over 2,000 theaters. So Ouch. Uh, pretty rough, pretty rough. But uh, that's sad to hear, but it uh, sounds like Christy... Puchko is a fan, and you'd recommend yeah. this
0: movie. Yeah. I, since we're going to talk about a really harrowing movie today, I was like, "Let's." Talk, I'm going to talk about some fun action movies that, that you guys will enjoy. So, yeah, Ocean's Eight and Hotel Artemis—they're good times. See them in theaters.
1: Devendra Hardwar, what have you been watching?
2: Um, on the plane to Taiwan, I finally got to check out Thoroughbreds, uh, mm. which is a—it's an interesting film. Uh, it's written or directed by uh, Corey Finley. It's about two uh, upper crusty girls in Connecticut um, who really live in that bubble. And having grown up in Connecticut, I, I can only imagine what that life was like for so many people. Um, you know, I, I used to play college. Uh, I used to play uh, soccer, and I'd visit other high schools, and be like, "Man, this school is just so much better than where I was." So okay. that's that's my you know, experience of rich Connecticut. Um, But yeah, this movie is about two girls. uh, One who went through, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like a a traumatic event involving a horse. And Mm -hmm. it was a very violent event. And she is kind of reconnecting with one of her old friends. um, I I think in a way, just to help her re-socialize. I think the concept here is that the, you know, the initial girl with the horse incident is having some severe psychological issues and her friend uh, they end up connecting on a deeper level, but also turns out her friend who seems to have the perfect life uh, may also relate to her in other ways too. Uh, this movie is really about them connecting. And uh, at one point uh, there is a plan to murder the normal girl. I don't know. The second girl's father-in-law. It's all very complex. Um, but actually, uh, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. There's a lot of like dry, dark humor here. It's a lot like Heather's, I'd say, um, except like not as uh, maybe not as flamboyant as that movie. It's 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 very dry. It's kind of subtle in terms of what it's doing. Um, but yeah, I really, my main reaction to it is like, oh man, this is what rich people in Connecticut are really up to.
1: It's a lot of like horse murder and
2: oh. plotting to kill each other i mm. guess
1: uh but yeah worth a watch all right that's thoroughbreds and yeah the trailers look really provocative and it's gotten good reviews so yeah. i'm hoping also that two t- great actresses uh by the way
2: olivia cook who's who's great here and Anya taylor joy who's been in a bunch of horror movies recently great performances from them and also i believe this is the final uh final movie to be released with uh, an anton yelchin performance yeah, too and he's sad. great in this yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, well, that's Thoroughbreds, and it's available on video-on-demand or on planes, which is where Devendra saw it. On
2: planes. It's a good plane movie um, because it's a good-looking movie, but also you, know, you don't need a giant screen for this one.
1: I want to mention a couple of things that I watched this week. Uh had a chance, as I mentioned, to see Paddington 2, uh, which is something that uh, my wife really wanted me to watch. And also I've heard from a bunch of critics that it's very, very uh, delightful. It's so and, good. Uh, and yeah. it's delightful. It's delightful. It's it's uh, really good. Um, it's like a perfect family film, and uh, if you want to be delighted, if you want to be moved, if you uh, want something that's really visually inventive and very stylized, um, Hugh
2: Grant giving his all,
1: Hugh Grant giving a great performance. That's a
0: nominated performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, then you should check out Paddington too. Uh, it sounds like you both enjoyed it as well. Yes.
0: I love that movie. I like literally it's I mean, like, I know it's really early to do top tens, but it's it's in my top five right now. I I think Paddington, Two is a absolutely splendid movie. And beyond just being a really cute, really fun movie, that's great to watch when you're having a bad day because it'll just lift your mood like a million balloons. It's also like really inspiring because like Paddington's whole deal is that like no matter how bad the situation, he's trying to make it better and he's trying to like find the light and. You know, I watched this in January, and it was really wonderful, and I'm just, uh, I'm super glad that it's out there. Like, it's on DVD. I bought it. I love it. I'm excited to share it with my nieces, because, you know, they love Paddington. They love his coat. They love his little bare face, and I think <laughs> they'll get a real kick out of watching him clean windows with his behind.
2: There you go. It's uh, a it's a really fun, like, a, the, there are some set pieces in that movie, too, that are so much fun. Agreed. There's
0: also, like, nods to classic silent comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a nod to, like, some Charlie Chaplin stuff. It's really clever. Yeah. It's, like, uh, very smoothly done.
1: The, the director is very talented. Paul King, he did, like, uh, Mighty Boosh, you know, a bunch of uh, episodes of Mighty Boosh. And so yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, like, a really distinct uh, visual style to the film. Uh, but, yeah, I, I agree with everything you guys have said. It's a thing that if you're feeling down, it's something you watch uh, to cheer yourself up. It's extremely British, um, so that's a bonus for some people. And, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it didn't do super well the box office in the United States. It made about $40 million. Uh did a, an extra $180 million, uh, you know, in foreign sales. But uh, I, I think it, this is a movie that basically – it deserved better than it got in terms of the number of people that saw it. So I, th- I, I would it, say...
0: It, kind of, it got caught up in all the Weinstein stuff, though, because it was a Weinstein yeah, movie. And they, that's right. they had to sell it off before it was released over here. Or they did sell it off. So you yeah. don't have to feel bad about watching it.
1: It deserves a second look. Uh, and it's out on Video on Demand, Blu-ray DVD right now. So check it out, Paddington 2. I had a chance to uh, watch a couple movies about sneakers and sneaky people. <laughs> Thank um, you. Had a chance to watch Sneaky Pete Season 1, finally finished that after a really long time, and it is uh really, really fun. Uh I'd highly recommend you check it out if you like confidence men films and uh and people hatching up crazy elaborate schemes that may or may not work. Uh Sneaky Pete Season 1 is available on Prime Video uh, right now. But also I had a chance to watch Sneakers for the very first time, and I'd never yes! seen this movie. And it's extremely embarrassing that i would never seen it because I host a podcast with Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, <laughs> and Stephen Tobolowski plays a significant role in Sneakers. Um, but yeah, Sneakers has been around for uh, quite a while uh, and is a very beloved film. Um, it came out in uh, 1992. It's been like 26 years since the film came out. Uh, and, of course, the, the movie is, like, heavily tech-based. There's a lot of tech in the film. And so the big question is, does the film hold up even though all the tech is old? Uh, and the answer is yes, because I think, like, really uh, the main elements of this film are kind of the uh, the way it connects these dots from, like, A to B to C. Like, all the, the sequence of events that th- these people, like, hatch this crazy plan. Um, I, it feels like many aspects of Sneakers uh, heavily inspired... Mission Impossible One to me, you know, oh, yeah. like just Most just definitely. in terms of like yeah. how those scenes are structured, like the breaking Move in. Very scenes.
2: very slowly through these
1: motion right. detectors. Yeah like, yeah, like oh, here are the fifteen obstacles we need to overcome in order to break into this place. You know, um, so I- including some like devices that they use that are visually similar to the ones they use in Mission Impossible. Um, but really, it's uh, the camaraderie between the characters that I think uh, helps to sell the film, and this is an amazing cast. You know, you got Robert Redford. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and uh, Sydney Poitier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some, some great. River performances. Phoenix! River Phoenix! David Strathern, actually. River Phoenix and hey. David Strathern uh, putting yeah. in some great performances. Mary McDonald. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone is great in Ever. this movie. But Stephen Tobolowski specifically, I want to call out because uh, that is an amazing performance. He goes from. <laughs> Uh, being a buffoonish cartoon relief character to being like a menacing, uh, kind of like almost evil force in the film mm-hmm. within the span of maybe five to ten minutes. And uh, that's awesome. Like, that's just, it's great when a movie can kind of uh, reverse things like that for you all of a sudden. And I think uh, Sneakers does a great job of that. So uh, I, I think overall, it's still a very, very enjoyable film that holds up. And the things that are great about it uh, are, aren't you know things that can be easily dated i think um you know the, the the movie is one of the few films that accurately predicted that the information age would be where uh, our new fronts of warfare are fought mm-hmm. and uh and so for that reason i think a lot of people revere it as being very prescient but uh i, I think this is still a great film and and well worth watching if you haven't seen it yet davinder you watched this recently as well right I did just rewatch this. We didn't plan this. Um, but it,
2: this is a movie I used to watch a lot during the 90s. I just haven't seen it in a while. Uh, and I was fascinated to see how much it holds up. Uh, it is a great heist movie. It's also a great like uh, movie about the process of hacking and sneaking into things, too. Like, just all those little bits. It really made me wonder um, why we just never really saw more from Phil Alden Robinson uh, who directed you know this and Field of Dreams? You know he, he had a couple hits for a while, and I've been reading, and he was just really choosy about his project. So you know he had some other movies like uh, Some of All Fears. Remember that?
1: Uh, uh yeah, the Ben Affleck <laughs> uh, Tom Clancy movie, right? Yeah. yeah, And
2: also he was uh he's directed some of The Good Wife, and I think he's a co-creator of that. Or uh, he's a uh, no, writer he on The
1: Good Fight. The Good well. Fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: he's he's been around. He's been doing some stuff. I feel like sneakers is a masterpiece. And it's a movie that deserved some sequels or some sort of follow-ups. Um, we could reboot this movie today, you know, with much of the same cast and really update it to you know modern tech, and I think it would be just as good. So I hope, uh, you know, I hope somebody gets a chance to do that because all, all these damn reboots—this is the one we really need.
1: Yeah, I, I kept thinking to myself as I was watching it, as I was watching, it, like, what would a reboot add to this? And I think there mm-hmm. is a, there is potential to like update it with today's tech and or a tv show like this would be a great like streaming tv show or something indeed um but anyway sneakers great film worth checking out i saw it on video demand and you should too if you haven't seen it yet all right before we move on to our review of hereditary we got to thank all the people that donated to this show Thanks to Darren Ma. Thanks to Jason Ross from Brooklyn uh, with their extremely generous donations. Thanks to Andy B from uh whythehatepodcast.com. Thanks for your donations. Thanks also to Luke Delacosta uh or Luke Delosta, Thomas Jensen, Matt Rockman, Eric Lalana, and Carrie Preston uh, for contributing at the rate of two dollars per month. You can always donate to the slash Filmcast. help us defray the cost of doing the show by going to slashfilm.com, clicking on the Slash Filmcast tab, and using the PayPal links on the side of the page. Or you can just go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. All the money you throw our way does go to help us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show. So we really appreciate it. Uh, All the people who donated this week, thank you so much. Let's get to our review of Hereditary
0: Come on, Peter, This is suit. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very
1: secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you
0: were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the
1: room. Oh, my God. What's that? That was from the trailer for Hereditary, the new film by director Ari Aster. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb, when the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter's family begins to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry. Uh, Divyajyoti, I'm going to go to you first today. Uh, you tweeted mm-hmm. about Hereditary, and you said the following: "Clenched my teeth so hard during Hereditary, there was blood in my mouth after her." So yeah, yeah. good horror. Uh, tell us more about that. Did you? Re- did, is that a true story? Did you exaggerate?
2: It is a, it is a true story because uh, I have. Uh, when I go to sleep, I wear a mouth guard to keep my teeth from like grinding. Yeah, as do uh, I. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. It's it's a good thing because uh, your gums erode if you don't do that. For some people, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I have some issues if I clench my teeth too hard, and uh, that certainly happened in this movie. So it's really, it is really strange to like leave the theater being um, shook, as the kids would say, from this movie. I would say this movie is more like violently shaken, like. This movie will leave an impact on you. And uh, you know, went to the bathroom and I was like, oh, something in my mouth. And just like see blood in the sink. <laughs> like, oh, man.
1: Okay. Uh, so but, what yeah, was it this... that created this reaction? Like, was it the tension? Was it the jump scares? Like, what was it for you?
2: I feel like this isn't really a movie made with jump scares. Like, it is it is really the tension. It is the sense of dread. Uh, it reminded me a lot of my favorite horror movies, like The Shining, a movie from, like, the first frame, you could just kind of feel the pure, you know, unbridled um, dread in it. And to me, that is far scarier than so many, you know, than the jump scares and things like that. And there are points, you know, this movie does have sequences that will kind of, you know, scare you as well. But I think it does them in new and different ways. Um, there's a lot of, um, like, low-light scares, I'd call it. Like, things where you could barely see something happening, like, just out of the corner of your eye. And to me, that kind of evokes, like, just being up late at night. And, you know, your mm-hmm. night vision is on, and you see something in the corner, and it could be something. It's something you haven't noticed really before. Um, it is that sort of, like... I don't know, instinctual fear in a way of just what we're afraid of. And this movie just really taps into that really well. And at the same time, it is a fascinating family drama and exploration of grief. Um, you know, there are sequences in this movie where people are just talking, right? And the words they say to each other feel absolutely violent. And that, that the, the concoction of all those things to me Makes this a tremendous horror movie. We could certainly talk about the ending because I think there are more complicated feelings around that. Um, but yeah, this movie, man I, I I cannot remember the last time a horror movie has really gotten under my skin like this. Uh,
1: all right, Christy, I think you saw this movie at South by Southwest, right? Is that right? I did. Yeah, I
0: did. Have you
1: had a chance to see it again, or are you going off the memory?
0: Um, way? I did not have a chance to see it again. Well <sighs> That's why I had <laughs> I had the chance. I uh I wimped out. Um, no I'm not ready. I'm I not don't ready begrudge
1: yet. anyone seeing this movie only once. Uh, I,
0: I will yeah. see it again, I think. I think especially uh, end of year, I try to watch the stuff that I really liked again to kind of figure out what my personal top 10 is. Um, but yeah, I was thinking about seeing it again in theaters this weekend. <laughs> And I chose not to. You for should take weeks.
2: Zach to see it because that would be fun. But yeah,
0: I I think yeah I think my <laughs> I think I think my husband has to see it. But I, I he, my concern was twofold. One was that after the Born Dane thing, I was already feeling very sensitive.
1: Oh yeah. So I was yeah. just
0: kind of like, I just want to go see Ocean's Eleven and just laugh <laughs> for a little bit. Um, but two and we can get into this uh more in spoilers but two was that i've heard that audience reactions to this have been very different and i didn't want to spoil what right. for me was an amazing experience because at south by southwest i saw this at the midnight screening uh it was the same night i saw ready player one and i looked up my tweets because i was i remembered that i was tweeting but it was Two months ago, and I was very tired. So you saw Uh, two
2: horror movies that night, I see.
0: Yes, (laughs) one that I loved and one that was terrible. Um, But I tweeted, uh, it's 3 a.m. and I'm never sleeping again, hashtag hereditary. (laughs) Uh, I was up until 5 a.m. that night. I could not sleep. I got back to, I was staying with a friend. I got back to their home, and I uh, turned all the lights on in the room I was staying in uh, for reasons. And even with all the lights on, I could not sleep. I was just too freaked out. And at 5 a.m. I basically collapsed. And it was mostly because (laughs) I was interviewing Ari Aster and Nate Wolf and Millie Shapiro the next day. So I had to be somewhat sharp. And I rolled in. Oh, I rolled in looking like death warmed over. And I said to them, like, this is your fault. Like, you've done this. Um, but I, the interview actually went well. I'm really relieved. Um, but I was terrified because I was like, I think I slept an hour and a half that night. I was so, so, so freaked out. And for weeks after, if there are two images in this movie that if I think of, I really do have a hard time going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I love this movie. I think that it is, I said in my review, I think, it, I think Aster is a new master in terror. I think that this is a very unique horror film that plays uh, against what people expect. And uh, I think that's probably why it's getting very strong reactions. Uh,
1: What did you like most about it, Christy? Like, what what, what, uh, aspect of it resonated most with you?
0: I don't remember the last time I was this thoroughly terrified through an entire movie. Like... I like I really love the Babadook for me that's like a touchstone of recent modern Mm -hmm. horror that really freaked me out. I really I remember vividly watching the Blair Witch Project in theaters opening weekend and how scary that was. But both of those things like kind of took time to like brew their tension. This brews its tension so quickly that like I was and this is kind of gross and I'm sorry I was dry heaving throughout (laughs) Hereditary. Um, I and there are
2: certainly thinking, shots that would make you just, but like not ask even because I was, a
0: hundred percent. But not because I was grossed out, but because I was so anxious that like my mm-hmm. my I was just my body was I was having a panic attack. I basically had a panic attack for most of the movie. Oh wow! And uh, which yeah, so lots of reasons why I don't necessarily say I would go see it again right away. Um, but no, I thought that uh, I think that the dramatic tension is incredible, and then it's like when they start actually adding in the horror elements, it. I just I couldn't deal. Like I, mm-hmm. I was I was really freaking out. Like you know, I, I watching movies. Yeah, we know we're watching something that's fiction, but there is something away about the way Aster put this together. It's like watching two thousand and one or something. Like your yeah, your brain yeah. can't deal like your brain starts freaking out and um i think it's masterful i obviously think it's not for everybody um and i actually warned my brother-in-law uh, mm-hmm. about this movie because he was like asking he's like yeah i hear there's some scary movies coming out and they had liked a quiet place <laughs> and he's like is it like a quiet place i was like no no it is not <laughs> uh, but he 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 saw it over the weekend. I was I was really excited. He like te- texted me to tell me he had really screwed up dreams all night. Mm.
2: <laughs> um, Mission yeah. accomplished movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I was like, that's fair. That's fair. But I mean, mm-hmm. I warned him. I said, like, it's not just that this this isn't just a scary movie. This is a traumatizing movie. Um, and I think it's really brave. And I think mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty sensational.
2: Yeah, I saw it in a semi-packed uh, public screening at the Brooklyn Academy of Music here and generally a good audience. Um so I did I, I wasn't too worried about how it'd be. I think people were really into the movie, right? They were screaming, they were saying what the fuck like several mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Um there was this one guy in my screening <laughs> who sat in the absolute worst seat, like in the back, the back row and like in the corner, like one of the edge seats. And I was just like, what? Yeah. At first, I was like, you know, going to the screen. I was like, oh, that's strange. That's a weird thing to weird reason to be sitting there. And by the end of the movie, I was just like, what the fuck is that guy up to?
1: What's he doing there? What? <laughs> so, yeah, that's what this movie did to me. Mm. Yeah, well, much fair. like uh, some of the characters in the film, uh, I have a horrible secret, guys, which is that I thought this movie was fine. <laughs> I didn't think it was amazing. Uh, and I, I have not been talking about this opinion widely because a lot of – like, you know, the vast majority of critics have the same reaction. You guys are sure. like, oh, my sure. gosh, it's phenomenal. Some, some people – I remember reading one reaction that, that said, uh, you know, I, I love horror films. I usually, you know, watch tons of horror films, but, like, I saw it uh, hereditary. And now I can't sleep anymore. I'm like, whoa, this movie is this going to be really scary, I guess. And uh, here's what I'll say is great is this director – Ari Aster uh, clearly is an insanely talented person. There's images yeah. in this movie yeah. that sear their way into your brain, mm-hmm. um, and, and not just like uh, not just like a mise en scène or something like like he uses the camera and the editing in ways that are really creative. There, there's mm-hmm. transitions that I remember from the film mm-hmm. because of how effective they are, right? And He's kind of using the uh, the lights out technique, like light to dark, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or like he using smash cuts in a in a way that's uh, yeah, or, or time transitions in a way that's really. Yeah. His effective.
2: compositions in general are just like there's so much going on in every frame. Yeah, you know,
1: like so. Good. I, I mean, I mean, the movie opens with uh, you know, you find out at the beginning that Tony Collette's character's mother has died at, at the be- like literally before you even see any images. It's right. revealed to you that this death happened.
2: hangs over the entire film. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and uh, there at the at the funeral, there is this photo of uh the grandmother that like the resolution on the photo is so high, yeah. that yeah. it feels like the grandmother's there like in yep. reality yeah yeah yeah, it's
0: unnerving it's instantly yeah, it, upsetting. and
1: it's like it's it, right from there like he starts blurring the distinction between uh reality and uh the supernatural you know like wh- and what is there what's not and um and i think that's really interesting i mean i think i so i think from a technical perspective the movie's exceptionally well made and i really love the family dynamics you know right you have tony Collette <laughs> putting on one of the best performances of her career um, you got uh, Gabriel Byrne, who is like just trying to manage this situation. Yeah. He, play, he plays her husband. she 's trying he, to manage. He has no showiness in his performance. Exactly, but it's also yeah. like
2: all internal and all trying to like deal with this madness.
1: Yeah. yeah. He's like a complete side character in this movie, but he does a great job. And of course, the kids, uh, Alex Wolff and Millie Shapiro, who play Peter yeah. and Charlie. Um, they also do they also do great so there's uh-huh. many amazing things about this film and I, I would recommend anyone watch it like um, um, like if you or particularly if you like horror movies you know it's definitely <laughs> something you should watch I, I would not recommend it if you don't want to be scared and, and terrified and traumatized um, but I think like for me it's just it's not my particular cup of tea because sure. this, mm-hmm. because really fundamentally um, the storytelling is quite muddled in my opinion and uh I, I have read I am not exaggerating. I have read no fewer than six explainer articles about Hereditary. Uh mm-hmm. that's like, here is what's going on in Hereditary is Ending. Here is like all what all the stuff in Hereditary meant. And right <laughs> around Article 5, you know, I was like, you know what? I, I don't know that this is really worth like it, Exactly. It, it, I don't yes. know that this is worth me putting all this time into trying to figure out what the fuck happened in this movie. Um it, it's it's and many of the explainers are like, we're not even sure what happened. Like it's open to interpretation, (laughs) you know? So I'm just like, okay, like on the one hand, there are many films, many films that are considered masterpieces where the, uh, creators and the writer, the filmmakers don't spell everything out. Mm -hmm. Uh, the shining, like the shining. Yeah. Yeah, A a lot of Kubrick stuff, 2001, the shining, um, completely respectable and even often a very good way of, uh, of telling a story. Um, and, you know, there's another movie that came out last year or a couple of years ago called The One I Love, which is kind of this oh, sci-fi yeah. movie uh, that takes place in one location starring um, uh, Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, directed by Charlie McDowell. And, I, I, you know, I, I saw that movie several times. I really like that movie. And Charlie McDowell in, uh, you know, Q&A for so that movie was talking about how it's, it's a real balancing act how much information you reveal to the audience, Right. How much do you spell out for the audience, and because uh, he had shot like whole sequences in the, for the One I love where they explain like everything that 's going on about the entire premise of that film, and many of those were left on the cutting room floor and in my opinion, the one I love the amount of information that 's included is the perfect amount i, I don 't need any more information than what 's there um, and it 's fine that he excluded all the stuff he did um, that is the right amount of theorizing for me that i that I can deal with, and for hereditary, it just ventured too far into the uh, I didn't feel like I had enough information. I felt like I, I had scraps that I had to then assemble using these explainer articles that I read online. Uh, <laughs> You're and trying I just in
2: Westworld. This movie, Dave. Yeah, it's,
1: yeah, it feels like a movie that you got a Westworld, and, uh, or, and or does it? I mean, okay. okay yeah, I but, would say
0: it feels like a movie you've got a Westworld. Yes.
1: Yeah, that I, David Chen, have to right. Yeah, yes. yeah, and that's
2: and <laughs> I've, heard th- I've heard this from a bunch of people too. Like, right, it's uh I, I totally I understand where you're coming from, Dave. I'm honestly wondering, too, what movies truly frighten you? Because I don't think we've ever had this conversation.
1: No, this movie – I found this movie to be to have, like, some really scary images um, mm-hmm. and, and really frightening moments. Um, but then, like, as the movie went on and I'm like, you know, I, I don't think this is going to – <laughs> conclude in a way that i'm gonna find satisfying you know like then like so you were anticipating right like that's when it starts like that's when the scares start having less of an impact for me do you know what i'm saying okay um okay. but we can talk more about that in spoilers but yeah, yeah. i was not a, like not a bad film but it's just not a movie that I, i'm over the moon for as many critics sure. are so mm-hmm. um so anything else we want to mention before we dive into spoilers for this uh, I, I feel like um you know this movie's coming
2: it feels reminiscent of the witch in a way, yeah, too, right? Yeah. Like, another is, A24 film, yeah. Another A24 film. Uh, I think what is essentially a great family drama, too, at its core, also dealing with, like, death and loss in in certain ways, and then the supernatural, like, slowly creeps in. And I think of that movie, and I think of some of my favorite horror movies, too, like The Shining. I, I, I guess I am really comfortable with not everything being explained, especially mm-hmm. if what you're doing is evoking you know you're evoking a mood you're you're trying to tell a story like these characters don't know everything that's happening um so i i like being in the role of the characters just like flailing and trying to figure out what's happening you know while everything falls apart around them Uh, i was reminded of uh the kill list as well yeah Uh, we can talk more about that in spoilers Yeah. yeah yeah
1: Uh, okay, so oh yeah, great great comparison to Vinder actually. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Amin in the Slash Filmcast chat room says Anne Dowd is amazing in this movie, and I just want to give a shout out to Anne Dowd. Uh, she was Dan. also in American Animals, yeah, which is a movie reviewed yeah. n- not long ago, and uh, she was also great in that.
0: You're so, Anne Dowd.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a big uh, Anne Dowd fan, and I think she brings a great combination of menace and vulnerability to mm-hmm. many of the roles that she's done recently. Like she's a person who you fear, but she's also a person who is like, can be very tender and vulnerable. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, she definitely expresses both of those qualities in this film. So and I've got more about her. When she shows,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. When she shows up in a movie, I'm never sure what to expect because exactly. of that. Yeah. And yeah. that's always really exciting. Or like, where are we going? What's Van <laughs> gonna do? Like and I've got, got more to
2: say about her in spoilers too, because yeah, there, there's yeah. so much going on there.
1: All right, folks, let's get to spoilers for *Hereditary* starting right now.
2: Now you're looking
1: for the secret. Do to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course. You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out.
0: Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret.
1: You want to be fooled. All right, share some more Andow love with us, Dundra.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw a thing where andow <laughs> uh Led a cult, you know that was preparing for the end times. But enough about the leftovers.
1: Nicely guys. done, nicely done.
2: But 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 also boom, uh, the Night. Also, Handmaid's Tale. Right? Yeah, I was so, gonna but... say
0: I'm a little behind, but I was like, I feel like that still qualifies.
2: It's also it also like how many cults will this woman lead? That's the question.
0: <hedge chills> She's so good. All of them. Mm-hmm. All of them all the time. Them. Always. Yeah um so now that we're in spoilers i want to tell you guys a quick story about when i interviewed millie shapiro uh so it was as i said the morning after i saw the movie i am ravaged i am barely like i barely slept i've barely eaten i'm running on steam did she cluck at you no no apparently apparently um, this is
1: a thing in movie theaters though that like people in movie theaters are like making that cluck sound for real yeah Oh, yeah. uh, you can imagine that no, being where yeah, yeah.
2: terrifying. Um, and also the no, sound design is so good that it seems like it's coming from all over. But uh, yeah. go ahead, no, I'm, say, I'm saying
1: people are being assholes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, saying, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. She's, uh, she's an incredibly charismatic, very sweet, very smart young woman who uh, is, uh, I think, a Tony winner for Matilda. And uh, she's lovely. And it was funny because it's just a total 180 from the character and everything. But uh, also she was wearing this dress that I thought was really cute. And when I looked uh-huh. closer to see what the pattern was, it was topless cars. Oh, like, God! Turtles. And when I realized that I like gasped and then I apologized because she was talking and I was like, I'm sorry. I just realized what's on your dress. And then Nat Wolf and uh, Ari Aster turned and looked at her and Nat Wolf went Millie, that is so dark.
2: That's so good.
0: <laughs> so I just wanted to share that because I've been sitting on that story yeah. because I couldn't say it in my interview because it's such a spoiler. But yeah, that was, and she was just like, yeah, I thought it was cute. And I was like, you're amazing. Like,
2: she was just trolling everybody
1: who Yeah, was yeah.
0: she even had a matching necklace that she's like look it rolls and it was a little <laughs> car that rolled but I was like I can't like if it had just been a car that would have been bad enough but it was like a topless car which felt like such a joke I just I couldn't handle it so <laughs> Millie Shapiro she's a sharp one watch out for her
1: I, uh, I thought the sequence where uh, her character is decapitated was mm-hmm. really well done overall but it did kind of uh, beggar belief to me that a, a, a family where uh one of the people has a uh, severe nut allergy would not bring the epi everywhere
2: that is uh, that's true but also teenage boys fuck up everything
0: yeah, yeah that's true. he's he's a yeah. reckless stoner boy who he's all very, he's
1: all messed like, up at that point so i guess it may, yeah. Yeah, maybe right. they, maybe they did have the epi pen you know like right maybe maybe. Just didn't I'm, know, I'm
0: not really caught up in that uh what i find so shocking about that is how it's staged where mm-hmm. like You think the breathing is going to be the problem. I 100% did not see that telephone pole coming. I mean, I guess neither did she, Uh but But, like, it happens, and instead of just, like, cutting to the... Like, you don't see the head come off. You just get the impression of it, right? And then, like, instead of, like, cutting to the head... Yes. We follow him home. Mm -hmm. We don't see the body in the back of the car right away. We just see, like, in the dark, right? And then it follows him into his room, and then it sits there with him. And then, like, just the patience that Aster has in this movie, the way he makes us sit with these moments of dread, when they finally cut back to the head, I mean, like, it's yeah. it's like the opposite of a jump scare. It's in, like Devendra said, it's like it's like the sun is starting to come up, but it's like a dark scene that then cuts to that, and it cuts to her head, and it cuts to the ants on the head, and, like, then uh, it just sits on that shot. For, like, for ten
2: s- seconds. Oh, something. It feels
0: like an eternity, and it's, yeah. like, it's... You are trapped in this damnation of this moment with them, and like that, I was just at that point in the movie. I was just like scared out of my mind and totally mm. hooked. Well, that's,
1: I, that's I loved how the, I loved how he uh, is like basically completely catatonic. You know, yeah. and, and that's yeah. that's not something like we see Tony Collette's character have the big reaction to it um but we don't see we don't
2: even see it we hear it
1: we hear it yeah. and we also see her like you know in her room and and uh wailing yeah, after all. um yeah. but but like peter played by alex wolf like it, he's actually so catatonic that he uh like becomes a terrible person you know because he doesn't mm. when he gets home he doesn't even say hey by the way this horrible thing happened um we need to <laughs> like hey, he leaves he lets his mom discover it in the morning wow. like
0: I mean, and it's like, it's awful, but it's also, like, I don't know. Like, somewhat I, I,
1: understandable, right? Like, Yeah. You can, like, what do do human. You, like, well once you face it, once you face that moment in your life, like, there's no going back, right?
0: I think that's what it is, right? I think it's that he's trying to put off because he knows that there's no going back beyond that. Yeah. Like...
1: Yeah. And that's something that the movie does really well, like, is... Like mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing, like all the family stuff I thought was really, really strong. You know, the mm-hmm. uh the stuff about like when they're at dinner and arguing and she she um she kind of goes off on him and yeah. he, like he never apologized and you see like all this tension just building up and exploding, uh and the performances it's it's all great stuff. It is when the movie veers into the supernatural and it's like by the way, it's not just metaphorical demons you're passing on. It is literal demons. uh, Well, but I mean, it's... it's I know that's the point of the film, but it kind of (laughs) loses me. uh, No, no, I I get it.
0: I just, I I feel like it's, I I don't know. I don't tend to like cult movies. Like, they, I, I don't know. They just don't tend to scare me in the same way. Uh, which I think is why this one stands out so much to me. Like, we talked about The Witch and Killist, and I understand that both of those are well-constructed movies, but neither of them move Mercury for me. They do nothing for me. Uh, but this one, I think because the family stuff, it feels like or- ordinary people, like, just cranked up to 15 or something. Yeah. It's just so raw that when the when the Supernatural stuff really starts kicking in, because there's, like, hints of it throughout. There's hints of weird stuff going on throughout. But when it really starts kicking in, like... It it felt I got it I like when I spoke to Astor the next day he confirmed my thought which is that the film is effectively about that sensation and that fear that you are doomed in your family like whenever a family is going through a dark time or whenever maybe you see yourself repeating things that your parents did that you don't like and you feel trapped by it right like you think that's you're what cursed. this movie is yeah. yes exactly you think you're cursed and like this is like a literal interpretation of that and um, you know like. That fear, I, I, I mean, I took it on so deeply watching the film that when we get into the finale, I, I was just a total sucker for it. And like, mm-hmm. for me, the two shots I referred to before, one is the headshot, because that image is just so horrific. And it's so starkly lit that you can't not look at it. You can't, yeah. you know, like eventually I looked away because I was losing my mind looking at it. But like, I couldn't forget it. It's still scorched in there. The other shot and in, and seeing this itself, by was so special is when he's sitting in his room and he's facing the camera but not looking at it right but he's mm-hmm. sitting on his bed and uh, Tony Collette is in the background on the goddamn ceiling and yeah. he doesn't know she's there.
2: Yeah.
0: And when I saw that in theaters I was looking at the scene I don't and like I my friend next to me chuckled and then looked me dead in the eye and I looked at him and I looked back at the screen and then <laughs> I saw it
2: that's the perfect way to get that realization too
0: yeah and i screamed i think i went like oh my god or just i was so (laughs) terrified and then you could hear other people in the theater like once and i'm not i may not have been the first person to scream but i'm very aware of my reaction but then you could hear like people throughout the theater seeing it because they're all going like oh it's like
2: terror like a virus or something
0: yeah yeah. it's spread and then it's like but like the shot doesn't cut away right it just Mm -hmm. sits there and again it's like I said to him in the interview, I was like, was that something you knew going into this that you wanted to do? Or was that a choice you found in the edit? And Peter and like Nat Wolf was like, Oh, we sat in those scenes for really long times. Like he just kept rolling and kept rolling. And, and like the fact that he, this it's insane to me that a first time director had the confidence to to Mm -hmm. do that and to trust the audience with that. And I know it's not been working across the board because we've gotten, we got a really interesting email about that, but, uh, which we can talk about, but, uh, I mean, for me, you know, this is a midnight movie at South by Southwest and like other midnight movies were like Upgrade and something called Bloodfest that was like a really, you know, <laughs> goofy. like, you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of them are like really goofy, really gory, unfriended to that kind of stuff. This was so patient and so daring. And I just I was suffocating. I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. watching this movie. I was astonished.
1: Um, yeah. Devindra, how did
2: you see? Did you see it at a press screening? Uh, No, I saw it at BAM at a normal, you know, everyday screening. Uh, I have to say, though, like, I'm very glad that the projection at that theater is very good uh, because I saw some people complaining like there were certain scenes where they felt like they should be reacting. They couldn't make out what was happening. It was because Mm -hmm. the theater they were in was just projecting it too dimly. So like that, that, you know, ceiling sequence, if it's not bright enough, you won't even you won't even see like what's happening there. And then, like, uh, I love how by the by the time we kind of pan away to the door, you see her skittering up the top, too. Oh, God. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we if, are I mean, in a situation
1: now where, like, like Solo has received a lot of complaints because of how uh-huh. low contrast it is. Much of it is shot in really dark environments. And yeah. if you don't have good projection, you will not experience the mm-hmm. film the way the filmmakers wanted you to experience it, which is really mm-hmm. weird now like that it 's so like you 'd think that with digital the experience would be more consistent, but it's right. not right. Um, and uh, it 's fascinating that like a scene like that with Tony Collette on the ceiling could be completely incomprehensible uh, if uh, it's not projected correctly.
2: And there are several scenes like that throughout the movie, too. I really love some of those scares or just some of those, like, it's just a brief glimpse at something in a corner. I think Millie in a corner at one point right before the hands come behind uh, the kid to get him. Um, But also with Solo, the sad thing was that that was a press screening. And it was still a little too dim for me because Mm. it was being shown in a... uh, Yeah, that whatever that theater, the one on 68th Street, uh, which is normally good. Um, Dave, I want to hear more, though, because um, we're talking about how much we love it. The Supernatural stuff didn't work for you. Is there anything in particular? Yeah, let's that, get into you know, it. But first, I, I just want to
1: yeah. read this email from Dalton from Florida, who writes into mm-hmm. slash from cast at uh he, it, Dalton recalls an incident where he spoke with his friend about watching Hereditary, and he says, quote, his audience— Dalton's friend's audience, where my audience had been screaming, was instead laughing. I honestly mm-hmm. thought he was messing with me. He went through multiple scenes where people were laughing, laughing at the acting, laughing at the scares. My friend thought the film was good, but not the horror show which I described. Shortly after he called me to tell me uh, this, I saw the cinema score was D+. Obviously, cinema score doesn't matter at the end of the day, but I'm truly shocked by this disconnect. For me, it was a magical, epic, horror film-going experience. For others, it's a comedy show? Question yeah. End quote. Uh, yeah. So what was the reaction? Like mm-hmm. I had a very respectful audience, no laughter or very little laughter.
2: Well, if, I mean laughter it, it depends on how it is too, right? Like when you're scared, sometimes yeah. that is that's the only thing your body can do. Nervous
1: really laughter eat. is I feel like yeah. a very reasonable reaction to a film yeah. like Hereditary. And, but it, but it, there it sounds are like that some wasn't the case. Yeah.
0: Very dark jokes in this. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's in the dinner scene I laughed a couple of times and oh, then man. I was just immediately like, Oh, I might be evil, like <laughs> after that happened. <laughs> um but my brother in law actually asked him when he saw it if people were laughing or if people were into it and he said he thought people were pretty into it but he said that he thinks they were laughing at the movie toward the end mm, right right yeah
2: I mean because it definitely like you were talking about not quite buying the supernatural stuff Dave I think when it gets really didactic about what's going on it's like oh this is a cult so now we're going to get the cult people and doing the weird culty things and then you get to the final scene and it's literally like you know um just hailing the new um,
1: demon that they
2: mm-hmm. you know that they bring on
1: one of and one of the like- better explanations of the ending mm-hmm. that I uh, read was by Britt Hayes over at Screencrush.com mm-hmm. who wrote a piece entitled "Hereditary Explainer: A Spoilery Guide to the Terrifying Twists and That Wild Ending." And what she wrote about the ending is as follows, quote, In the end, a crown is placed on Peter's head as the cult bows before him. Mm -hmm. While the literal meaning of this scene is chilling enough, it's the existential implications that are truly upsetting. An entire history of familial tragedy and trauma, of pain and mental illness has been foisted upon him. That crown represents a burden, a weight beyond measure. What appears to be a, a twisted celebration is a moment of horrible defeat, as Peter is given no choice but chosen. Ultimately, mm-hmm. we're left with the most indelible image in a film filled with them, Peter the King of Pain, who fell into his position by virtue of nothing more than circumstance, end quote. I do like this idea that uh, you don't get to choose your family and that like you inherit yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a bunch of your family's hangups and genetics and diseases and all these things that you had no control over um, – and that sometimes you may not want to inherit those things. And, like, that is a truth that I think the supernatural elements of the film do a good job of bringing out. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as I said, I, I, I think that ultimately uh, I, I thought the movie was better when it was grounded. Like, here, okay, spoilers for the Babadook. Spoilers for mm-hmm. the Babadook. <laughs> Tune out if you don't want to hear spoilers for the Babadook. But one thing I really love about the Babadook is you can read that film as entirely a family drama and like no supernatural elements whatsoever. Like it is possible to watch that film and like, oh, it was all like that. The Babadook was just a physical manifestation of grief. It was all in her head. Like it's completely possible to read it that way. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it's possible to read this film that way. Like as though, um, as though like it's all in their head and it's not really a cult and it's not really like literally payment, uh, the Mm -hmm. demon, you know, like, it, I just don't think the text of the film lends itself to that reading. And for me, uh, that's just less interesting because uh, the idea of like a family like that you're uh, trying to escape from, uh, you're trying to escape from the uh, the things you inherit from a family and the relationships in a family like and that being and being unable to escape from that family. Like that is a much more grounded and scary thing to contemplate than a demon is trying to possess uh, mm-hmm. my body and uh, a cult is going to help them do it. You know, like, like one of right. those things I can relate to and the other one I can't. Um, well, I mean, but it
0: seems yeah. like it's all about fate then. Right. Like, cause I mean, there, there's setup for that. Like there's a mention of the brother who killed himself because, and like Tony Collette writes it off at the time when she's in the support group talking about how like mm-hmm. uh, he said, my mother was trying to something World's about my worst was
2: support t- group session, by the way, just <laughs> another point where I was laughing, but yeah. Uh,
0: but uh, yeah, there's setup to it. And like I, I think I understand the frustration at the ending because I feel like all of a sudden a lot of this stuff is thrown at you and some mm-hmm. of the imagery. Mm-hmm is almost silly because it just feels uh so different from what we've seen before like everybody being naked i feel like especially with like american (laughs) audiences we inherently get a little giggly and we're like what why is everyone naked so i feel like that's my my brother-in-law said people were laughing when the naked people showed up and i was like okay like i get i get i understand why that happened that was not my reaction but also like it was 3 a.m and i was losing my mind um but like i think because there's like an exposition dump in the end yeah it makes people confused which i think is why you're getting all these things but for me did i totally understand all the exposition in the end no which is also why i read the explainers just to be like that i missed something and like right. i don't think i did i think i basically had the pieces there um for me though it's just the end while i can think i think the end gets a little sloppy and it's not as tight and thoughtful as the rest of the film necessarily uh i don't care because, mm-hmm. like, the driving force of the film was so good that I'm just kind of on board. Uh, and, and you know, the ending is so upsetting because in the end, it's like none of en- nothing any of them did really mattered. It was all mm. going to come to this place no matter what because of things out of their control. And, like, that's really terrifying. Like
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it, it I feel becomes
0: like, scary in a new way.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, even though we have the overt supernatural stuff, like, there is enough of the subtext in there to be like, oh, the, what's actually really terrifying, though, is that yeah, you can't really escape this. This is what's happening there. And also, like, even the naked people, like, um, the horror for me was like, how many of those people did we just see, like, casually, you know, strolling around in the movie oh, wow. before? Like, there's that. It's like these these people are just like, they're part of this, like, whatever curse is a part of your family the weird creepy smiling guy from the from the Mm -hmm. funeral right at the beginning like you certainly see him but so many other people as well and you know to me that's yeah it it really gets at like the suspicion i'd have like you never know what other people are up to as well um i keep bringing up the shining but this movie just kind of evokes that for me you know we never know why why is jack in a in a freaking photo you know how's that work it doesn't matter (laughs) It doesn't matter because, like, what the essence of the movie is that yeah, his soul has been trapped there, or will be trapped there, or is essentially is trapped there, as as all those other poor spirits. And for me, yeah, I got the driving essence of this movie for sure. I and think I uh, some of the,
1: ex- yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things about the ending that was kind of ineffective for me is that. You you know, uh, Christy mm-hmm. points out one of the things, which is like this kind of exposition dump at the end. Like, really, a lot of information is thrown at the audience in the last yeah. Yeah. Uh, twenty minutes of the film, right? But also, I think another thing is there for movies like this. There's a question of like, what are the rules here? You know, what can this creature uh, payment like? What what can they do? You know, they can force uh, people like Tony Collette's character to decapitate themselves. But it's like, well, why didn't they just do that? Why didn't this demon just do that earlier in the movie? You know, you know when you introduce a force like this and you have very ill-defined rules, um, then it, it just it raises more – raises all these questions that I don't want to be thinking about. I'd rather just be caught up in the moment of what's happening. And it was tough for me to do that. So mm-hmm. that's, that's all I'll say about the ending and, and why I was not a fan. Um, yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Um, But uh, any, uh, you know, uh, Christy shared her kind of indelible image from the film. Like, Devendra, uh, uh, any indelible images that that kind of stick in your mind uh, as as we wrap this up? I mean, I think for me, for some reason, the image that stuck with me was uh, the one where, like, it's her dream. And, like, she tells her son that it it was a mistake Mm -hmm. to have him. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they, like, start catch on fire and they start burning before she wakes up. Uh, I just thought that was, like, a really deeply upsetting set of things to occur <laughs> yeah. in, in sequence. Deeply um, upsetting
2: feels like the entire
1: movie for me. Certainly the, uh, the decapitated head, uh, shot where
2: not just how horrific it is, but how long it lasts and how mm-hmm. much it like, there's no, there's very little, uh, what do you call it? Uh, there's very little, uh, space around the frame either around like the actual, the actual head. Like it's just right. really focused on it. Like it is, it's, it's, to me, like, I think most horror films, if even if they do something that horrific, um, it's a glimpse, you know. Yeah. I think of like uh, the ring, and when you, you know, there's a mention of like, oh, did you see her face? And then it's like a half second shot of the horrific face. And I think being forced to confront an image like that, uh, there's another shot like uh, the dream sequence where the ants are all over the boy's face as well, like mm-hmm. in his yeah, uh, motif like is
1: really effective, yeah
2: the motif, um, Tony Collette, like when Gabriel Byrne's character just catches on fire, so many of the images in this movie just feel like pure, you know, indelibly horrific to me, so, yeah I, I have too many to choose from, basically but I think that sequence um, that we talked about um, of of the kid, like after the decapitation sequence happens, and he's just catatonic, just like kind of accepting it like okay this happened I'm, I'm just gonna drive home i'm gonna go to bed and everything's gonna be normal and we're probably gonna think about that sequence forever because yeah. it's just so it's, pre- it's, it's pretty it's, upsetting and it feels pretty plausible yeah. too
1: i yeah. i do wish we had gotten a little bit more of the like what happened because it basically yeah. like, cuts yeah, yeah, forward yeah, yeah. like months and yeah. they
2: never talk about it really. right
1: right and i guess that's part of the point is like oh they mm-hmm. like it went unacknowledged but I guess I just feel like it would have come up in conversation yeah. at some point. A police sure.
2: conversation or
1: yeah, something? Yeah, you know, like... But it's yeah. like
0: it doesn't allow us the insight to any sense yeah. of feeling the button on that moment there right, is yeah. no button on that moment we're robbed of it so we're just stuck with that tension and because like you uh, know I would there's say, no resolution
1: yeah I, I would say uh that's okay okay like in some cases christy like there's times when like robbing me of that resolution is okay when like i'm supposed to feel like how the characters feel like and the, mm-hmm. the characters never had resolution but i guess i feel like it's implausible to me that there wouldn't have been some kind of reckoning. Maybe the family is just so good at like stuffing down their, their feelings that they never confronted each other about it. But even in the argument that's depicted on screen, it does feel like they've talked about it before. Yeah. No, um, no,
0: I'm not saying they haven't talked about it before, but I'm mm-hmm. saying that like you know, it doesn't matter that they've talked about it. It's not resolved. So it's like to yeah. keep us in that sense of tension where he is, where he you know feels. Trapped. Like they don't give us even that kind of there's no break intention. Mm. There's no relief. And it's like, you know, a lot of times jump scares are our means of giving us a break intention, right? And allowing us to kind of scream and let loose and giggle or whatever. And like Aster doesn't give us that. He just keeps turning the screws, right? Um, so yeah, yeah I I understand that this isn't doesn't, doesn't work for everybody. Um, but for me, like, I, I just thought that there's such a mastery of tone and suspense in this that like it really—I mean, it literally took my breath away.
1: Yeah, awesome. And we—we
2: we get a sense early on too that this is in a family that communicates very yeah. well. Yeah, too. yeah, like yeah. That whole—I go back and listen. Just think about the uh, just the conversation. Um, getting you know, getting the girl, yeah. uh, basically Tony Collette's character convincing Alex Wolff's character to you know bring his sister along, bring her to the party. Yeah, it's such like a back and forth of like passive aggressive bullshit. That felt shocking to me, like, for this to be a conversation between a mother and son. Like, is this kid just, like, super petulant or something, and the mother just doesn't have time for it? Like, something deeper happened here, and we eventually learn what that is. Uh, But, yeah, I'm looking forward to, like, re-experiencing those conversations, like, knowing where this movie goes. Because I think a lot of that is kind of uh, laid out at the beginning, too. Like, um, Christy, you were saying you didn't see the poll Um, you know uh, that ended up decapitating uh, Charlie. But on the drive to the party, like the camera just stops for like a half second at the pole, and there's like markings on it too, as if yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of like breadcrumbs throughout this movie too. Like maybe that was supposed to happen. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear that like payment or or uh, the cult like somehow engineered. Yeah, uh, that situation yeah. Uh, but again it's all, it's all pretty, pretty hazy in my opinion and there's many interpretations of how it occurred uh, no, matter, no matter the case I'm really glad it worked for you guys and I do think that uh, Ari Aster is a bold new filmmaking talent whose work mm-hmm. will be worth watching in the future. His short films are online by the way and a lot
2: of people are talking about those and they sound really interesting so it's not like he just made this movie out of nowhere he's kind of been building up this uh, his technique and his talent for years now.
0: Awesome. I'm curious what you guys think about Toni Collette, because the conversation is like, could she be a dark horse for the Oscars? Oh, and like God,
2: yes. A24 yeah. is like
0: already kind of I mean, you've seen the ads on Twitter and stuff that are already kind of beating that drum for her. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what you like. Devendra's full on board. I'm, I'm, fully a, I'm on board. board
2: like that. That yeah. dinner sequence alone. I think uh, David Ehrlich is just posting some gifts from that sequence and just like <laughs> the way her face contorts and the way she's thinking to herself. And uh, there's just so much going on in there.
1: Yeah, I am I'm, I'm on board. I think uh Toni Collette uh for best actress definitely uh has my vote. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm
0: excited to hear that. I think she's amazing. And I feel like it's it's been hard traditionally for actors in horror movies to get recognition like uh I think the last one was uh The Woman from the Exorcist, right? Or not hmm. The Exorcist. Um Rosemary's Baby, Ro- Ruth Gordon. Am I right? Yeah. Nobody won for Silence of the Lambs, right?
1: uh yeah i'll look at that i, I, I don't, don't think look so. it up, yeah
0: this yeah. was something i was looking at when we were coming into like get out and stuff like that but i think that's accurate but um but, but like a24 i i think they could make a stand with this and colette is like known so i feel like this could be the thing that like finally kind of
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: breaks through that barrier um the academy seems to know her and like her but then the downside is that i i don't know will the academy be on board for this movie I can yeah. see a lot of people shutting off the screeners.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, we'll see. Um, but yeah, that's our review of Hereditary and uh, well worth checking out in theaters if you have a chance. Uh, it is extremely scary. Find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from Kyle Hillinger, filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be talking about next week. In the meantime, Christy Pacheco, where can you find more of your work on the internet this week.
0: I write all over the web. You can find my career highlights at decadentcriminals.com. And I write every day at pajiba.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Christy Puchko. K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O.
2: How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Davindra Devendra. And I write about tech at engadget.com.
1: Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chensky. And YouTube.com slash Dave Chensky. Next week, we'll be discussing The Incredibles 2. Very highly anticipated movie uh, that I think we'll have some strong opinions on. So thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Slash Cast. We'll see you later.
2: Our farm is a dairy farm. We only use organic feed. The cows produce, you know, quality organic milk. Yet yeah, all our hens are RSPCA-assured, free to roam in and out of the sheds throughout the day. They lay a lovely york.
0: The key to our beef cattle is looking after their, their welfare, keeping them happy.
1: At McDonald's, we're proud to source quality
2: ingredients from over 23,000 farmers from across the UK and Ireland. Good to know.